Chapter 8 of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 To the Far North Mandalay is generally the limit for the flying tourist who rushes up from Rangoon by train and goes down by mailboat, giving barely one day to the famous royal city, but a certain number of tourists penetrate as far as Bamo, which is perhaps half as far north of Mandalay as Mandalay is from Rangoon. Though the distance is shorter, the journey is longer, and the route by rail involves some complication. One leaves Mandalay at midday and arrives at daybreak at a junction called Naba. Here a change is made to the little branch line which deposits one on the river's bank at Katha the remainder of the main line running on to Mayatkina. The steamer which leaves Katha daily in the middle of the morning goes slowly through the grand scenery of the middle defile and ties up for the night above it, moving on again the following day so as to get to Bamo at about eleven. Besides my disappointment at missing so much of the river by taking rail to Katha, there was the crawl down to Amarapura again and the ferry at Sagaing to negotiate, and the disagreeable necessity of spending a night on the none-too-clean cushions of the railway carriage, but it had to be faced. The station-master at Mandalay was extremely civil and obliging, and I had a carriage to myself, so I could not grumble. After crossing the river and climbing the sandback to Sagaing station, I was rewarded by an unexpected and pretty sight platform was crowded with fruit sellers, squatting beside baskets in which their golden and ruddy wares were piled high, glowing in the rich sunlight. Burmese stations are an inexhaustible source of interest, but they are rarely so attractive as Sagaing was that afternoon, with oranges gleaming between the wide meshes of the cunningly contrived baskets and great piles of green watermelons and rose apples. At every station there is a sweeper in a turban and loincloth, which have presumably once been white. He has a large switch-broom and assiduously brushes up the dust into everyone's face. The intention is laudable, but the practice disagreeable. The people travel extensively. There is constantly a crowd on the platform, and how they chatter! A rookery is nothing to it. A rookery of magpies would be the only equivalent anywhere near. At one place someone split a basket of green tomatoes down beside the train on the line, and the yelling and rushing and gabbling were such that I thought someone had at least cut a hand off inadvertently. The food sellers, too, made themselves heard abundantly. They went up and down carrying a large pannier baskets swung on a bamboo, like a gigantic pair of scales. These were filled with a sickening mixture that made one's stomach turn even to look at it. Bad fish, yellow cakes, cigars, a kind of dried mush, and whole peas welded into rings and circles. The trains do their best to act in keeping with their stations. It would not do to have a straightforward, dull kind of train in such a scene as that. Sometimes they start out quite hopefully after waiting only a comparatively short time at any platform. Then, before they are well clear of it, stop again and settle down. At last they take courage and dawdle along to the next station, perhaps about five miles off. Here they apparently take root. At length the guard waves first the green flag, 
and then the red one, and then both together. But finding the engine driver takes no notice, he pretends he was only flicking the flies away, and resumes his conversation with the station master. Suddenly, when he has forgotten all about it, the train goes off, scattering all the paria dogs, and hens, and goats, and people, who have been strolling about among the wheels. There is a running and jumping onto the footboards, and for the next three or four minutes, many a dark face passes your window as its owner works himself back to his own compartment along the footboard. When fairly underway, however, the trains go a good pace and get over the ground well. These are only minor incidents. When we had left Sagaing, we stopped a long time a little further on, and though it was still the height of the afternoon, the sky became overcast and a cold wind seemed to be blowing about mysteriously. I noticed it, and thought how strange a thing it was to happen in this cloudless country. But presently the sun shone again, and I forgot to speculate on the gloom and unexpected darkness. Not until a fortnight later did I learn that I had missed an eclipse of the sun, when I might have seen it by putting my head out of the carriage window. Such is fate. We ran on through rather uninteresting country, but as the sun sank, I saw a fine panorama unroll before me. The line is single, there are no embankments, the windows run right along the sides of the carriages, so whatever view there is, is seen uninterruptedly and in great comfort. We passed along by the edge of a vast mere or marsh, just as the sun, three times its apparent size, was setting. The water turned almost blood-red, and was broken by clumps of bushes and tall reeds, and peopled by long stringing flights of wildfowl. When the sun set, that indescribable warm, golden glow so full of tone succeeded, and then darkness dropped as sharply as when a candle is blown out. On little low-lying spits of land, campfires sprang up, and I got a glimpse of natives fishing. Over all was the queer sort of smell of burnt wood, which I shall ever associate with Burma. It seemed to me I was in a dream, for the air was neither hot nor cold, just the atmosphere of a dream, and the vastness of the empty plain was eerie, when suddenly from out the darkness, standing on a piece of wasteland, utterly alone, there seemed to spring a great image of Buddha, pure white, and three or four times life-size. It was sheltered by a rough thatch roof, supported on poles, and in front was a long row of little cheap candles burning brightly and straight in the still air. At Shwebo we stopped for dinner, and I made the acquaintance of the only other European on the train. An elderly man, an engineer, going up to Bamo, and beyond over the hills into China, to report on a railway which might possibly come into being. Afterwards I slept comfortably in the train, as we hurried on through the night. When I awoke in the morning the air was as thick with mist as it often is on a November day in England, and everything was dripping with moisture. However, here you have one certainty, that it is not going to continue so all day. The sun's fiery rays will soon send the mist flying. Near Naba, where we had to change at about seven o'clock, I got my first glimpse of real jungle, great feathery clumps of bamboo with little tracks leading between, and a huge broad-leaved plants and thick creepers. At Naba, it was possible to get some tea, and we soon started on the little branch line that slowly climbed up an immense height, 
and then dropped down again to the river at Katha. The rail between Naba and Katha ran through one of the prettiest parts I had yet seen, and I saw it well, as there was kind of cab or platform at the rear end of the carriage on which I could stand to watch the scenery as we crawled upward at a foot's pace. There was real jungle on each side, great teak trees, impenetrable bushes and creepers, and innumerable mighty bamboos. Many of the smaller plants had bright red leaves, and all were glistening in the morning moisture. Behind, high hills rose to perhaps a thousand feet, clothed with forest to the very top. To me the charm was intensified by the freshness of everything. It was so unsullied, so untrodden. When one views a similar bit of scenery at, say, the Scottish lakes, one knows that people pour over it in their hundreds every day in the season, and the bloom is gone. It was quite hot when we arrived at the station where we were to board the steamer, and she was waiting for us. Oddly enough, she goes by the name of the ferry boat, though the whole day and part of the next one is occupied by her trip upstream. They have odd ideas of ferry boats in this part. If I had been able to come by cargo boat as I intended all the way from Mandalay, I should have come right past here without changing. The ferry boat was quite comfortable, with a small saloon deck forward, roofed in, and protected by awnings, and here I and the engineer spent a peaceful day together. The wide, placid river, the blue hills, the endless sandbanks, filed past monotonously until we reached a place called Shwegu, which at once stood out apart from others. It is on a cliff-like height, crowned by palms, pagodas, and chungs. A long flight of wooden steps leads up to the heights, on the edge of which were seated, like large paroquets, the most gaudily dressed people I had yet seen. They rather reminded me of Swiss peasants in their costumes, for they were wearing short red skirts and leggings, blue bodices with red sleeves, and had a broad red band across the breast. They belonged to the tribe of Palongs. On their heads was a kind of hood edged with white, which fell back so as to form a long cloak behind. It was at Shwegu also that I saw some Afghans on the beach, big bearded men, who stood out markedly amid the little beardless Burmans. After this we drew near to the entrance of the middle defile. The banks of the river were lined by a rich lush growth that glowed green-gold as the sun struck it at an acute angle. Then the hills grew higher and closed in on each side, and a damp, woody smell crept out across the water. Sir J. G. Scott describes the lowest defile, the one I failed to see not being able to come all the way upstream, as being formed simply by high banks covered with dense vegetation, and puts pithily the difference between the three defiles thus. The first defile may be called pleasing, the second striking, the third savage. So I clearly had the best of it in seeing the two I did. Huge trees with white stems as straight as telegraph posts stood out against the dense foliage and wreaths and ropes and shawls of creeper flung themselves from one to the other. There was a wide clearing as sharp as a knife edge down the side of one hill, 
and for a considerable time this puzzled us greatly, until my companion rightly surmised it was the clearing for a new telegraph wire. As the hills grew steeper, it looked as if we must run up against a dead end, but we turned a corner almost at right angles, and saw a towering cliff which dropped sheer down to the water. It was one of the grandest sights in the defiles, and as we saw it, black against the evening sky, we lost nothing in the setting. About a third of the way up, on a mighty rock, stands a pagoda, looking like a child's toy, though I am told it is sixty feet high. The current did not seem swift, it was so very smooth, and we went slowly with the oily swell falling away almost without a sound. There were no birds, only the unearthly silence of a falling night. As the shadows grew darker, a weird hoot sounded out suddenly. It was our siren to warn rafts ahead that we were coming, for to meet one of the hundred-foot rafts in such a place as this, at a narrow bend, would mean disaster. Just as we turned a sharp corner, two flaring, dropping torches shone out, and drawing nearer to them slowly, we saw two naked figures, like the bronze statues modeled to hold lamps, standing with outstretched arms at each end of an enormous raft. Then we were through the defile and moored for the night, for the river channel is too dangerous to traverse in the dark. The whole of the forepart of the deck was awninged in and made a cozy room. It was absolutely still, except for the ceaseless chattering of the native crew as they foregathered round a wood fire on the beach. End of chapter 8